Hey there, I'm Helen Ornelas, and I've been a life insurance, long-term care, and Medicare broker for over 20 years, helping thousands of clients during this time. I've come across all types of cases, questions, and calls from people who are in planning or in crisis and provided solutions. So welcome to the OnLive podcast with Helen Ornelas. Listen, you know as well as I do that taking care of important things in life is motivating, empowering, and even inspirational. You're thinking, what does this look like? If you're a business owner, executive, or someone who wants to know, what do I need to know about life events, how to prepare, where can I get help, you're in the right place. These life events will be coming your way, and you will receive these phone calls from your family, siblings, in-laws, grandparents, business partners, and friends. What calls do you think are coming my way? Let's find out. I'll be sharing stories, solutions from me, my clients, providers of service, and others that can help you now or in the future. We have the toolbox here on life, so if you're ready, let's get your toolbox loaded up. Hello, and welcome to On Life with Helen Ornelas. So excited that you're here, and we're starting the new year off with one of my most favorite people in the world, Renee Balcom. And Renee is from Renee and Company, and one of her businesses is being a health advocate. It's such an interesting topic, and I can't wait for you to hear about what she does and who she is and the advice that she can provide for us. We're going to have about three parts to this particular segment because I think it's so important. So the first one we're going to start off is just getting to know Renee and what she does. And so, Renee, I'm going to turn it over to you. And why don't you share with us who you are just to get started? Well, Helen, I really am so appreciative to be here with you today and um, uh, so excited to meet your audience. So thank you for having me here. As you mentioned, I'm a healthcare advocate, and I've been doing that for about 20 years. And health advocacy is an interesting profession because People don't know about it until they need it. And then (laughs) (laughs) it's always that way, right? Right, right. So I love podcasting and I love this medium because it gives us a chance to get out. And I'm on a mission to help people get equipped for, you know, the challenges that they have in the healthcare system today, as well as what we're going to face as we age and as we see uh, the demands on our healthcare system continue to increase. So, so what the heck is a healthcare advocate? And I've been described by a couple of my clients as the hired gun. And <laughs> I love that, that definition, because in a lot of ways, that's really true. All of us have had a couple of experiences in healthcare. One, we either set up an appointment and, you know, and because we have to set up an appointment that's kind of a little ways out oftentimes, especially with our specialists. And then we get in and they have their little blue sheet and they say, you know, what are you here for? And we have to take a minute and go, what am I here for? Right. It's been it's been a minute since I made this appointment. And then we start kind of getting through that. And we usually have that conversation with the medical assistant And then the doctor comes in and there's this real uh, calamity called white coat syndrome. And that's when the doctor comes in and the patient kind of clams up and the doctor says, how are you? And the patient says, fine, right? And, And it shifts from being a true medical appointment 
to more of a social appointment. And, and then we end up leaving the medical appointment and feeling like, oh, you get in your car and you think, oh, that's right. I meant to ask about this and this and this. And we've all had that experience, either ourselves or with someone that we love. Or even worse, you're trying to communicate with the doctor and the doctor just for whatever reason, maybe they had a difficult patient before you, maybe they have a procedure after you, or maybe it's just a bad day for them, but you leave just feeling that you're not heard. When we're dealing with severe illness or chronic illness, that's the worst moment, right? Is when you get in your car and you just feel defeated, and you feel like you haven't been heard, and you go home, you know, you pick up your prescriptions, and you go home, and you just kind of sit there and churn that again. So that's kind of normal for most patients. So I, I know from personal experience, when I had my own health issue, I took my husband with me, because the minute the doctor walked in, I went blank, and I only heard 25% of what he even said to me. So I just wanted to add that, that it's, that it's a real thing. Statistically, that's really true. You know, we have, we have a natural fight or flight instinct. And one of the things that happens, especially if we're dealing with what could be a, a dangerous or a life altering diagnosis, right? literally our brains start getting really myopic. We, that whole, my life flash before me idea literally happens because what happens is you start thinking, wait, we have plans and we're supposed to go on vacation in September and we've got all these things going on and your life is literally playing out before you and you're not hearing a word that that doctor's saying. And all the while, the doctors talk to you about, you know, a treatment plan that really could be life altering, right? One way or another. Right, right just isn't hearing it. Like you just don't, your ears are not hearing that at all. So, so that's a real syndrome. It really does happen. And it happens to 95% of every rarely, including medical professionals will tell you that rarely can a human brain process a difficult diagnosis without having that experience. So, so it's just, it's really, really important to have another party in the room. So you were lucky to have your husband. Yes. Sometimes that's lucky. Sometimes it's not. (laughs) That's true. But I'm a lucky one. (laughs) And a family member is really important. But then there's also someone like myself, which is a hired, the hired gun, which is a professional that can, we sit and we document everything the doctor's saying. We may ask some directing questions to kind of redirect information because we know our client and we know what some of the obstacles will be for our client to get through their treatment plan. You know, we may be, you know, brazen enough to say, doctor, with all due respect, we'd like to get a second opinion, which I, you know, advocate for all the time. So consider the healthcare advocate as the professional in the room that's kind of helping direct the conversation on behalf of yourself. The other thing that we do is we kind of take the temperature of the doctor and we should be researching the doctor and making certain that this is a doctor that's knowledgeable about what they're talking about and that they have a good track record and that they have don't have some pending lawsuits and some other things that may be happening. So I usually will research the medical professional. So just giving you a scenario, let's say we went to the doctor, I'm with you, I'm hearing all this information, we go home, and I I usually write a summary report based on that appointment, and then I do research on the the, um, diagnosis, 
what has been the latest and most successful treatment programs, and then also a history on that medical professional. So, so that way we kind of have a really good foundation about what we're dealing with. Do you find that sometimes people think, well, this doctor or this facility, whether is my only option, because maybe I'm in an HMO or I'm on Medicare or, you know, maybe I'm just my personality isn't aggressive. And so whatever they're going to offer me, I'm going to take. Yes. And again, I think that's pretty normal. You know, we most of us have been brought up to assume that the doctor's the smartest person in the room. And the doctor may be the most educated person in the room. They may be, but they may not be. But oftentimes they're not always the smartest because smart would imply that they know you and they don't. They have 10 minute sessions with you, you know, on kind of an irregular basis. So they're not the smartest, right? <laughs> you know you. Right. You're going to do, you know what your obstacles are, you know what your what your inhibitors are, and you know what your passions are, right? And as a healthcare advocate, hopefully I know a little bit about that too, so that we can leave that session and and really make the right decisions for the next steps for you, for the patient. And and again, all due respect to the medical profession. But unfortunately, they, their rules and their regulatory system limits them. And depending on the system that they work with, right, they are so limited in their time with you. And I mean, these are even some of the high, high level specialists. Like, you know, I've been with some really highly educated, high level specialists that, you know, have probably collectively had less than an hour with their patients. And yet, let's say in oncology, they're about to you know, treat you with some of the most dangerous chemicals and drugs on the planet. Right. right? So, but they don't know a darn thing about what's going on at your house (laughs) and how you're going to navigate that. Right. So I, as a healthcare advocate, I really try to, to bridge those gaps for the doctor, for my client, and to make certain that we understand, you know, how you're going to successfully navigate whatever the treatment plan would be. So nice. So you've shared stories with me before that, you know, sometimes you just go with clients to treatment, like maybe chemotherapy, because somebody may have family, but they're in other states and they don't want to bother them and disrupt their world. So it's not like you always have to be like in the doctor's office needing another pair of ears, but sometimes just sitting and sharing time and being with somebody because that's another place where somebody's very vulnerable and they don't know what the entire process is supposed to look like, how they're going to feel, you know, take a taxi home, all that other stuff. So can you share a little bit about that too? Yeah. In fact, I have a wonderful client right now. He's 88 years old. He's amazing. He's a a retired military and he was a pilot in the military and, uh, you know, just, you know, a great dad. He's, he's raised six kids, you know, good Catholic man, right? And just, you know, really just uh, his, you know, I think could be the poster boy for that American male that we're all, you know, aspiring to see and find, right? So he got diagnosed with cancer and, and he has three daughters, five living children and several grandchildren. But, but what he asked me, the reason he wanted to hire a healthcare navigator, healthcare advocate was because he didn't want to be mothered by his daughters. 
He wanted to keep his role in the family as the patriarch of the family and as their father. And he said, look, I don't know what to expect from this treatment plan, but I don't want my daughters to start trying to take care of me. Like that's not my relationship with them. And I'm not willing to give up the order of our hierarchy in our family because of chemo. And so, so he hired me. And just as you described, I participated with him in his chemo. And in fact, what ended up happening with him was there's a kind of a little weapon, kind of secret weapon that I use when I'm sitting with an oncologist and they're designing a treatment plan. And that is doctor, and everyone listen to this because everyone should ask this question. Doctor, would you prescribe the same treatment plan to your parent or your loved one? I'm sure that gets them every time. Every time. They stop dead in their tracks. And he stopped, and, and my client already had a port in. We were ready to go. He stopped. He looked at me. And he said, we're going to change your treatment plan. And we went from chemical oncology, where they were going to go through the port and deliver the the chemicals through the port to a medication. Wow. Medication, which my client has thrived going through. Wow. He hasn't had any sickness. It hasn't torn up his body. He can manage it himself. So my time with him is really minimal. I was really close to him for the first couple of of rounds of care just to make certain that because chemo tends to have this buildup, right? It becomes effective the more your body takes it on. So I wanted to see how he was doing. He did great. He's doing great. And so I can pretty much exit the program until he needs me. Right. happened there. Number one, doctor changed the plan because now it became personal. Right. Just another member number and another, this is our protocol for this. It was, oh my gosh, if this was my dad, I wouldn't, and my 88-year-old father, I would not do this. Right? That's fantastic. Yeah. True story. Yeah. First course, the doctor, and and I've got to tell you, this doctor, you know, is a just an amazing man. He was such an impressive doctor. And I loved that he was vulnerable enough to change course, right? And to hear what I said and to reorder the his program for this client. And I really, you know, just want to honor him that he did that. I mean, a lot of doctors may not do that. I will tell you as a secret weapon, I've never asked a doctor that question that it didn't stop them dead in their track. <laughs> And, and make them really think about what they were about to do. And that's that's what we want to do. The, the key thing about being a healthcare advocate is uh, my job is to elevate my client out of the systems and procedures and into humanity. This is a person with a life, with a family, with pets, with vision, with the future, with hopes. And are you putting them in the right program for them? Yeah, I think sometimes when you have your family involved or a very close friend, the dynamic just shifts and it kind of muddies the water a little bit because you still have people that are so emotionally invested in what's going on, right? And so having someone like yourself being on the outside who is neutral can really bring some different ways to look at your particular situation. And listen, had that same doctor said, nope, this is exactly what I would do, then we would have gone forward with his plan because- trust him. And he was the one that had to lay his head on the pillow and sleep on that. (laughs) 
So, so I was going to trust him. But oftentimes, those loved ones in our families are afraid to ask those hard questions. They, you know, or they don't know exactly how to word it, or they don't know when to interject that into these appointments, right? And again, you know, tops, I, I will say right now, we're starting to see the doctors spend a lot more time with patients. So hopefully, um, they're not just making up time from the pandemic. Right. <laughs> the new normal. But, you know, back then, I mean, we were getting maybe 20 minutes in an appointment tops, and that was twice as much as than we were supposed to be getting, right? So, so usually a doctor has about 11 to 15 minutes allocated to a patient. So, wow, that's yeah. not a lot of time. Not when we're talking about a life altering treatment plan. It sure the heck isn't. So I know that you've worked with other clients to set up kind of like an action plan. Somebody comes to you and And you just kind of lay out a whole course of action depending on their particular situation. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that looks like and what that process is. Yeah, sure. So when I meet a new client or I get a new referral, I usually do kind of an assessment of what, again, I I try to look at what's kind of siloed and how do I bridge that? My job is to pull, bring things together, right? How do we bridge those gaps? So I start writing out what I call a care plan. And the care plan really is my duties, you know, the resources that I will bring, whether it's, you know, bring in a home care provider, bring in a fiduciary to help with finances, whatever those needs are, those gaps are, my care plan would outline what I believe those next steps should be. And then I present that to my client as part of our contractual agreement that this is what you can expect from me. And this is how I'm assessing your care needs. So and I and I try to look at the whole spectrum of care. I spoke with a gentleman yesterday that he's really in a tough situation because his wife has had uh, multiple surgeries and the last one just was not successful and she's bedridden and he has a two 19-year-olds and a 20-year-old mm. trying to keep his household together and he's really, really struggling and I could hear him struggling. So, so what one would normally think my focus would be on the wife, it really wasn't. It's on the whole family because first we have to bridge those gaps, right? We have to help them feel healthy and feel good about caring for mom before we can really address mom. Like they right. readjust their energy and their compassion for mom and what's going on in the household so that, you know, she can get the right kind of care. And, and it, it was a hard, it was a hard conversation because it's really a family that's in a lot of pain. Man, that's tough. I know that in working with uh, some of your clients and putting plans together that you have found some potential physical abuse, but also abuse in caretakers gaining access to funds and also maybe even changing beneficiary on life insurance policies and stuff like that. So from the aspect of putting that plan together and doing your work and checking everything out, I was wondering if you could share maybe one or two of those stories with us right now. Unfortunately, it's more common than not, especially when we're dealing with maybe someone that's up in age and they don't have a lot of care supports, or maybe they don't have, I mean, I don't want to say resources, because listen, I've worked with people that had lots of money. Sometimes the more money you have, the more people are trying to take advantage of you, or they are taking advantage right. of you. And again, unfortunately, statistically, it's family that uh, have a sense of entitlement 
And, you know, they feel like, well, I've been taking care of Aunt Betty for a year, so I should be entitled to her bank account. And, and I've seen insurance policies change. I've seen bank accounts change. And frankly, I'm, in, I'm battling a situation right now with between two sisters where the, I have my client is, uh, has some cognitive impairment. She's really starting to show dementia. And the sister who's kind of always been in the shadow is stepping in to care for the sister that's that has dementia, but she wants access to her monies and to her and feels entitled to have access to her monies. And uh, and so it's been, in fact, we were just at the doctor and the sister, the two sisters were there. And I asked the doctor to please do an evaluation of my client cognitively to see if she's able to make decisions about giving her sister ah. the money. And the, the sister that wants the money wasn't happy with me that I, that I brought that into the doctor's attention. And then to be honest with you, the doctor has now ordered social services to step in. So, cause he had an appointment with my client and one-on-one they talked and my client was very adamant about what she wanted and then when the sister came in the room, she completely reversed course. And so that was a flag to the doctor that wow. okay, something's, something's awry here. Something just doesn't feel right. And so he's elevated now to social services. And we have an APS report coming in and they're going to do some assessment work and we'll figure out what the next steps on that looks like. But but honestly, Helen, that is not uncommon. It's more common than you can imagine. Yeah. You told me a crazy story about a healthcare worker like stole the client's brand new bed or some crazy thing like that. Can you can you share how that crazy story just so that people know the weirdest things can happen out there? Actually, that's a great, it's a great learning experience because mom and dad were in an assisted living facility. So they were paying, you know, we, we put our loved ones in these facilities, assuming that they're going to be safe and they're going to be looked after and they're going to get all this care. And I want to warn your audience, like read that 135 page contract that you sign, because it's going to be one of the most expensive documents you will ever sign in your life, including homeownership. So pay attention to what you're signing. And in this case, they were just a lovely couple. They moved into this facility out in Lincoln, California. They were paying top dollar there, like $7,500 a month for this tiny little apartment, right? They had a sleep number bed, which is kind of an expensive bed, right? And that was because dad was kind of a bigger guy. And um, in fact, even his nickname was Bear. So that is indicative of his size, right? And mom was this petite little gal. So they bought this bed and when they moved in, because they'd given up their home and, you know, so they bought this bed and one day, so during the pandemic, you know, they were pretty isolated in the room. They were all quarantined, but we had that little break when the, when we had that little break through isolation. So they went out to lunch because it was their first chance to get out of the building. Right. So they go out to lunch, they come back and their bed is gone. (laughs) So where's our, you know, $8,000 bed. And no one wanted to answer them. No one wanted to give them any information. So somehow they'd heard about me and they hired me. And 
This was a couple of months after the bed had been taken, right? They're back in isolation again. They've got these two twin beds in their room. They still have not gotten their bed back. And trust me, they were asking about their bed diligently in writing. They just kept making inquiries. No one wanted to respond. So they hired me and I went in and, you know, met with them. There were a couple of flags. First of all, I and I did talk with the director and let him know that, you know, I'd been hired and I wanted to know about the bed. And what he told me was that the bed was there in storage, but it was problematic for the caregivers in trying to provide care for the husband. And which again, I'm, you know, because they couldn't get all the way around the bed. So it was like a big king size bed with right. Right. Which I kind of understand, but you know, until you see the space, it's hard, it's hard to really comprehend what their struggle was. But I, you know, I documented it and it's like, okay, I'm going to be open-minded. So I go and they're in a pretty big space. So, but what was interesting was that I was there for just a few minutes. And the next thing you know, this young woman comes in and I'm meeting with my clients. This one young woman comes in and says, you're not allowed to be here. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, the director said you have to leave because he didn't give you permission to come here. And one of the things all of your listeners should know about is there's this thing called Title 22, which is the the regulatory system and the rights of people living in assisted living. So if you really want to know what your residents' rights are, it's in California, Title 22. That's all you have to Google, and it'll tell you what your residents' rights are. So one of the Title 22 rights is you're entitled, this is your home, so you're entitled to have guests and to have freedom to come and go, right? Obviously, COVID was putting a little impact on that, but it was manageable. We were still within the Title 22 rights for me visiting. Well, I, you know, said, well, I'm not leaving because I'm here. I didn't have an appointment with the director. I had an appointment with my clients and I don't need his permission to be here. Well, then he got on the phone with me and started to really try to verbally muscle me to leave the building. Well, for me, that was just a flag, right? Flag, 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 flag. So I said to him, look, here's the thing. I'm not leaving, number one, and I want to see that bed because you've told me that the bed is in this building in storage. Well, then we had a million excuses why I couldn't see the bed. So now more flags, right? So I said, okay, this is what's going to happen. By 5 p.m. today, that bed needs to be back in my client's room or the sheriff's going to be here. And we're going to file a police report for stolen property. And I said, I don't, I don't care. Maybe you're even sitting on the bed as we speak. I don't care. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. But I want my client's bed back because what's happened here is wrong on so many levels. You entered their personal space that they paid money to live here and allowed someone to take their possessions without their permission. So, Renee, did they take the bed out and then just put two twin beds in the room? Yes. yes. Wow. Yes. And wow. Got by five o'clock, that bed was back. <laughs> I knew it would be. It's so shocking And the moral to that story is that we have this vulnerable population that's living in assisted living that we assume, we want to assume that they're being looked after and cared for. And Helen, nothing can be farther from the truth. I know. During that same time frame, I had another client. She was in isolation. Her debit card was missing. 
She reported that to the administrator. They got on the phone and ordered her a new debit card. And between that time, the time of her debit card being missing and her getting a new debit card, someone had gone in and spent $15,000 out of her account. Wow. Right. Now, what was interesting was their mail was being hand-delivered, right? And so I suspect her debit card, her first debit card was taken. They ordered a new one. The new one came through the mail. It was confiscated through the mail by a worker, right? They reset the PIN number and went on a shopping spree. And they spent $15,000 in six days. In that situation, we were able to get the bank involved and she, we were able to recover her monies, right? But listen, had she been left on her own and she didn't have supports from me, she would have never known. I made, I made eight phone calls, including a call to the Department of Justice to get her money back. Wow. Reports filed. I also want to say that there were charges filed against the people who stole their car. Oh, that's great. They were removing $600 a day from an ATM. Now you have pictures. They're looking right in your face. There's a camera at every, every machine. Right. Yeah, nobody said criminals are the smartest ones, but they certainly are a nuisance, right? Exactly. And, and exactly. And my client would never have known the process for recovering her money had I not gotten involved. And, and you know, just to let you guys know that, you know, I'm not perfect. This client called me on a Saturday and she's like, honey, I just want you to know something happened. And she's got some dementia. And she's like, someone took some of my money. And I said, oh, okay. And she said, now she, again, she's been in quarantine for weeks, right? And she said, um, but you know what? I just realized it's Saturday, so I won't bother you today. But when you get a chance on Monday, will you call me? And I'm thinking, I wonder if she watched a movie or something like <laughs> that happens. So Monday, first thing I called her and she goes, yeah, I just, you know, I left the statement for you to come by and pick up and I just want your opinion. So I did. I went by and I was first I was dumbfounded by what I saw because this dummy was shopping at Victoria's Secret and all these other places. Right. And it was just crazy. And then I felt terrible because I'm sitting here thinking my client, Oh, she's right. Right. So listen, it's not a perfect system at all. My part of it's not perfect, but, but again, had I not stepped in immediately, maybe I was driven by, by guilt but I stepped in immediately and started making phone calls and we were able to recover her money and get some things moving in that case. That, that in fact, just so everyone knows, happened the same time the bed was taken. So I had multiple clients in different facilities being robbed and taken advantage of during the quarantine. Oh my gosh. It makes you afraid of getting old and being vulnerable, right? My mom's in a living facility as well as her husband. And I am so fortunate that my sister spends three or four days a week with my mom in the facility and is on guard watching her all the time. Uh, My mom and her are extremely good friends and they have this great relationship. I know it's a strain, but there are things that have happened or would have happened if she wasn't there as much, right? When they know someone's there and keeping an eye on everything, it does kind of keep some of that that stuff away. So when you're on your own and very vulnerable, uh, we most certainly need someone like you to keep an eye on us. So one in six adults over the age of 65, one in six do not have family members or adult children to help them. So one in six is a big number. Yeah. But then, 
you know, when I first heard that number, I kind of didn't believe it because I'm thinking that's a lot. And then I started doing my own little survey and it was pretty spot on, you know, I mean, I have friends and associates that don't have kids. And if they found themselves in a situation like that, who's looking after them, right? So, so it's, um, yeah, it's really, really interesting. And we're going into another period of more isolation. So Sacramento County just started mandating some, some adjustments in visiting facilities this week. And, um, and we're starting to see a little bit of that. Um, it's not quite as bad as it was. Hopefully it will not go back to, to the complete uh, uh, isolation that it was, but we're starting to see it now. Yeah. And even my work, I was told I couldn't enter a facility. And it's like, not true. <laughs> Yeah, I know my my sister has to get tested every three days before going to the facility right now. So and then my nurse, my mom's nurse got COVID. So then now they have her in isolation. And so, you know, it's just it just gets to be difficult. Renee, I know uh, we're going to do a part two to this, but what I want to end this part one with is how does somebody contact you and when should they contact you? We'll have all of your uh, your bio, your website, your phone number, email, and all that. But I just uh, want to talk a little bit about on when something happens in a family or to yourself, when's a good time for them to call someone like you or give you a buzz? So I have offices in Sacramento. I do have three healthcare advocates now working with me. And uh, so we're getting two administrative assistants. So we're getting pretty big demand. I can be reached. I am in Sacramento. My number is 541-661-2369. And I field all of the inquiries myself. Usually I will interview the clients myself. I just want to make certain it's a good fit for whatever assignment it is. And I'm still working with clients myself as well. So so uh, they can reach me that way or email me at Renee. R-E-N-E-E at ReneeCompany.com. Awesome. All right, everyone. This is uh, part one of part two with Renee Balcom. This is On Life with Helen, and we'll be talking to you soon. And please look for part two on this. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of On Life with Helen Ornelas podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, Please share with a friend. And if you haven't already subscribed, rated, and reviewed on your favorite podcast player, please do. If you have any questions or comments, any topic ideas, or you might want to be a guest on my show, you can reach me directly, Helen at OrnellosInsurance.com, H-E-L-E-N at O-R-N-E-L-L-A-S Insurance.com. In closing, this podcast is dedicated to all who believe in preparing for the future and beyond.